Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Richards. Hello. Andrew Mason. Good morning. Nate Hopkins. Hi there. Dave Kimura. Hey there. And Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we're talking about something, something tools mess up your life. Right, Dave? <laughs> Don't get me started, man. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. No, we want to get you started. That's the whole point. <laughs> so my initial thought and premises around this is that when you have processes and tools that actually hurt your productivity, they are not bringing in rewards. So it's not making the application more secure. It's not making it more stable. You're not increasing your productivity. Then should these processes or tools be taken outside of your SDLC or software development lifecycle? You know what the answer is, right, Dave? Move to JavaScript. <laughs> no. Oh, great. I'm done. <laughs> no, it's true. Do you have an example? Because, I mean, most of the tools that I pull in, there's some kind of payoff, right? Usually it's some form of automation or infrastructure or something. The infrastructure tools are the ones that kind of come to mind that, oh, I don't need this anymore, but I'm still maintaining it. But a lot of the rest of them are productivity tools that save me time. And so, yeah, sometimes they hurt, but most of the time they don't. Or the benefit yeah. outweighs the cost. I think a lot of times, and where I think a lot of developers can more pinpoint this is in the processes or red tape, if you will. And I think that it's important to have processes. You know, otherwise people are going to be running amok. They're going to be conflicting with each other and it's just going to be a nightmare. But from the coding perspective, that's where things get a little bit more iffy. So let's say if you are a uh, editor, you use you prefer an editor that is old, antiquated, doesn't have really a lot of functionality. It's just a simple text editor. Well, how much are you hurting your productivity by not having something that where you can find definition on a a particular method that you're calling or something like that. You know, are you hurting yourself by not switching over to something a little more elegant or a little more feature rich? I was resisting the urge to save Vim there, but I'm not going to. I know, I know I was too. You can, you can pick on Vim, just leave my Emacs alone and we'll be friends. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pick on both at the same time. <laughs> No, that's called I, Space Max, and that's what I use, and knock it off. <laughs> that's Emacs and Viv inside of Emacs. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I'll, I'll just throw in here is that for a long time, I, I've... Uh, so my primary editor these days actually is Visual Studio Code. But I start, you know, I, I used Emacs for a long time. I used Vim before that. And, you know, there were definitely terrific tools in there. The, the problem wasn't that didn't have the functionality. The problem was, was that I spent a lot of time building my own lightsaber instead of just going into the plugins tab on Visual Studio Code and saying, I want that. And then having it more or less set itself up. And, and that, that's the trade-off I think that, that I'd be making there, right? There were some nice things about Emacs and some things that once you got running were pretty automatic. But yeah, you usually had to do some form of setup on your own. Yeah, Part of the challenge is muscle memory. Right. Once once you've got the muscle memory for one of those tools, it, it can be very disruptive to to pause and, and and adopt a new one. It's the same for like adopting Vim or Emacs in the first place. It takes time. Yeah. It's like it's like learning to play the piano, right? It, it takes a while and a lot of practice to become efficient. And once you become efficient, it's it's very difficult to leave that ecosystem. 
Yeah, but a lot of these systems have plugins for key bindings for Vim or Emacs. So in my case, on VS Code, I use a really wacky hybrid of the built-in keyboard shortcuts that come with VS Code and the ones that are set up for me by the Emacs plugin. Has it gotten good enough to... To be sufficient, I guess. Like every time I've done that and and tried, it's there's always some like little nagging part of it that doesn't work very well. Yeah, it, it it's never been a hundred percent the same. But typically on those things, I found another way of doing it, and then yeah, I had to retrain a little bit of muscle memory. But for most of the more common things, you know, just the generic uh, text editing commands and things like that that have you know convenient key bindings. I mean, those those imported directly, so they were fine. So it, it was usually the the more generic parts of my process, like, okay, go kick off the test, go kick off this. But the other thing is, is that even then, um, I can just put the command for the command line into the shortcuts tab on VS Code, and I can set it up for the same thing I had in Emacs. And so the the workaround there was, the plugin's already there, the command's already set up, and all I had to do was set up the key binding. Yeah. And, you know, I think that kind of is a overall good point. If you were to lose your computer today, let's say if you had the important things backed up, and if you were to get a new computer, how long would it take you to get that computer set up to become productive again? You know, the original steps that you had, do you have them documented in an easy way to follow to where you can replicate and then get productive by that afternoon? And I think in a lot of cases, the answer is no, either because we are on a newer version of macOS and the last time that we stood up our development environment was years ago. So there's one tool that I'm sure most people are familiar with is Homebrew. But what I think a lot of people don't know is that you can do a command brew space bundle space dump and it'll compile a list of all your taps, your installed uh, brew files, and then the casks as well. And then you can just call brew bundle on this brew file that was generated and then it's going to just reinstall all of those things for you. So then you don't even have to think about, okay, what tools do I need on my computer? Because chances are there's a cask for it where you can just have it in your list. And then when you go to provision your new environment, it's going to be much, much quicker. Yeah. One other thing that I did with the Emacs setup, I mean, there, there are workarounds for all this stuff and people have solved a lot of these problems. But I, I had a, my basically a dot files uh, repo. And I, I haven't maintained it much since I moved over because it was mostly for my Emacs stuff and maybe a couple of other tools. But essentially, yeah, I would back up my Emacs config. So getting set up again wasn't that big a deal. By the way, I, I love that, Dave. I just did that um, with the brew. Now I've got a, a brew file. <laughs> I had no idea <laughs> I could do that. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've um, followed other people's dot .files that they've, they've shared on their GitHub profiles, you know, just for getting their, their laptop started. And that's sometimes helped. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I try to get tools that are reusable. I try to make sure every project is self-contained so that I can rebuild it. Um, I always build a make file in every project that does a lot of my work. So it's, it's in the Git repo of how I install things, handle dependencies, you know, where my documentation is, um, you know, where the actual code is stored. So that way um, it's easy just to come into an environment and make sure it's running the way I need it to. Yeah, but isn't the ultimate version of that in the cloud then? I mean, you're talking about just having it set up, right? Then if my laptop disappears, then I just, you know, I got to sign into the cloud from something else. Or am I missing the boat on something? I do a lot in, in cloud. So I, I get it all set up that way, Git repo. I use, um, uh, what is it, Paperspace? I use for a lot of my data work, which is just, I have it all pre-configured, uh, uh, an environment with lots of GPUs that I can go and train models on. Um, so all that stuff is out in the cloud where I, I can lose my laptop and still go to work. If you stick as close to the Rails core as possible when developing a web application, so that means you know forget all your fancy JavaScript frameworks and just stick to Action View, maybe add in stimulus, just sticking to the Rails core, you're going to be able to more easily maintain that project long term. Much like 
with your own development environment if you stick to the very basics of things. So you have your brew file, which installs all the little gadgets and gizmos that you like having on your computer. But if you don't do too much configuration changes on each one of those things, or if you have things backed up to a dot file that's going to easily configure them, then you're going to greatly reduce the amount of time it takes to not only stand up your environment, but also to get it back to the way you like it. But then also to make it repeatable. So if you are someone who destroys the computer once a year, then you're not going to have any loss of productivity. Yeah, as someone who destroys their computer almost every time I update, which is a habit that I would very much like to get rid of. I've made it almost into a science of I back up a lot. I have all my um, dot files in a repo. I back up all my homebrew bundles. I have basically created a, a way if I accidentally destroyed my VS Code settings, I can pull all those down. I have a command that will reinstall all the plugins. And also, I think there's ways to, I, I've been looking at this a little bit recently, but there's cloud IDEs now that are becoming more and more popular, um, like Coder. And I think there's Microsoft's going to launch something specifically for VS Code. That And Docker is also a way that I can get back up and running very, very fast. Even if I need to jump on to another computer, if I'm using a cloud service like Coder, I can open my VS Code settings right there and have an IDE ready to work. One thought that came to my mind as as you guys have been talking about your editor uh, setups and whatnot, like I've got my dot files out on on GitHub with a readme that instructs myself how to how to get a system set back up, and with it usually within ten minutes, I'm I'm I can come in with a new system or a new operating system and and be you know developing again within ten or fifteen minutes. So that's pretty fantastic. But the, you know there was a rite of passage to get to that point, and tools like Visual Studio Code. I think make this much more approachable for the beginner, right? And I mean, that seems like a, a worthy goal. I mean, we as things as you kind of grow and mature in your in your career, of course, you're going to get more sophisticated uh, about how your setup and, and operating system, or just, you know, just your entire environment is working. But initially, you want to take all those barriers to entry away. I mean, if you listen to the, some of the code bootcamp. Folks talk about just that first night of, you know, we're, we're here at a meetup or, or a, a hackathon or something, and we're, we're trying to intro new people to development. I mean, a lot of times your first night is just trying to set up an environment. Yeah, that's true. One, one thing that I'll throw in there too is that my kids went to a coding boot camp at NGConf a couple of weeks ago, mainly because my wife was at a BYU Women's Conference and uh, I, had, I had to put them somewhere, so I signed them up. And they were using CodeSandbox.io, uh, which we can throw into the show notes. Um, and I was talking to the guys at StackBlitz, which a bunch of the other coding schools use. And in both of those cases, those are in-browser systems. And so you can actually get people starting to code. I don't know if there's a good Ruby option for any of those, but you know, at least in JavaScript, you know, a lot of that stuff's actually moving to the browser in the first place. And so that's all cloud-based as well. So oh, the setup wow. is nil. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that is really good. A lot of people um, have been using Jupyter for this reason as well. I think there's about 40 kernels for it, so 40 different languages that you can use. But the same idea that you could work on a piece of code, have it all basically self-contained and shareable. It's, it doesn't quite handle the dependencies unless you do a couple steps, but it's not too bad. But it's just this idea that I'm working in my browser, I'm building things in a shareable way, and I can... I can use um, comments, you know, in line, I do markdown comments and, and I can have my graphs and my, my text and my code all mixed in there. And then with a couple lines of code, I can export that into a library pretty easily. But just that idea that it's reusable, it's exposed, it's, it's, it's literate, uh, the way um, uh, Nuth used to talk about literate programming. Um, that's the effort to try to get past that barrier of the unknowns, you know, all those things that our tools are doing for us, trying to make those things go away and just say, I understand what it's doing or it's reusable enough. The thing that's inter interesting about Jupyter too, I've talked to a number of people who are using it for various things, is that with, you know, with some of the ones that I mentioned before, the Code Sandbox and Stack Blitz, those, those you can basically have set up for a particular framework. But most of the Jupyter notebooks that I see are focused around things like 
IoT or machine learning or, you know, and so the, the use case driven development is really interesting there too. Yeah, I like that because then you can get right into something you're trying to do and not worry about it. What I've seen a lot of people do is they'll put a Docker container behind the, the Jupyter Notebook. So now all the dependencies are in a container and then the notebook is, is connecting to that. And, then, and that, then it's really portable because whatever the use case is, it's, it's ready to go and then you can work with it and understand it. Yep. That kind of dovetails into like the, the, what we let off with in terms of the, the tooling, right? So uh, is all of it necessary? How deep do we go? That sort of thing. I mean, because Docker, like if you're going to open that can of worms, you can, you can spend quite a bit of time just trying to figure out what it is you need to be doing with that entire ecosystem, right? I mean, it's fantastic when, once you've learned that, but is, is that a necessary tool or is it something that we should try to simplify? Well, and I've seen people kind of, um, I wanted to say pave over the can of worms, but that, that's an interesting mental image that doesn't really help. Where essentially they use Docker to get people running without necessarily exposing all the under, underlying stuff, right? It's like run these two commands and then you're up and, up and off to the races. And you don't really think about that you're running Docker under the hood. And, I and I think a lot of these tools can go both ways, right? It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to use React. And then you go down the rabbit hole and then you go down the other rabbit hole in the rabbit hole versus, you know, if, if you get enough of this stuff, you know, maybe create React app and a couple of things in there and you just kind of do it the way that it leads you along, it can be reasonably simple and you can go down the rabbit hole later. Yeah. Well, I have some opinions about Docker and I think Docker is great. It definitely, that combined with Kubernetes solved a real world problem. You have applications that are very microservices driven and done properly. So there's no communication between applications. They're very isolated. Each microservice does one thing or one small sets of things and it does it very well. And then if you need to develop on that, then you do all your local development on your computer, but then you need to ship it out to production. And I think that's where a lot of the problems with microservices would come into play, where you're shipping out wrong versions of different microservices that will conflict or not interact well with others. So Docker comes in and then you can build all of your microservices images and then deploy those images, knowing that now everything is on the correct tag, everything is getting deployed on this date, and it's going to work. And Kubernetes takes that a step further with managing all of the backend infrastructure for your containers and everything, or your pods. But I think that people have taken this great thing, which solved a real-world problem, and introduced it in areas where it does not belong. And by doing that, you know, meaning that you're bringing it into your development environment to now develop off of, now you are introducing a complexity or a tool set that doesn't need to be there. And now you're just adding complexities that's going to slow down your development. Yeah, I, I've seen that recently. Uh, last week, we had somebody uh, spinning up a Docker container and it took him a, a few days because of the complexity. We went from, hey, this is how we want to containerize our, our apps to here's all the other things we want to throw in there. and it, it goes far, you know, and there's maybe good reasons for them, but the complexity, we leave that complexity on the surface where somebody has to figure it out every time. And so the, the, the amount of mind share it takes to be able to get started is growing too much. And then we also expose a lot of what's going on inside to people on the outside. They're trying to set it up or use it. And so it's, it's, it's getting a little bit hard, I think, from a lack of discipline, it's getting hard to reuse these tools the way we want to sometimes, or we have to have a specialist on the team that can kind of vouch for we're doing this right. So it's kind of gone a long ways from, hey, here's a recipe, do this, and now you can run it to, oh my goodness, we've got a lot of, a lot of things we're trying to do. In software, we, we, we're getting pretty good at architecting systems where we, we, we write bigger modules or we drive the complexity down off the interface. 
but I don't know that we've done it very well with Kubernetes and, and, and Docker right now. It seems hard sometimes to, to be able to, to just pick up those tools and use them the way they were supposed to. Yeah, I think when you're getting started in an environment, the, the real benefit there is the, the abstraction that it provides, right? I, here's, look at what I don't have to even consider or think about. Like I just start the Docker container and that abstraction is working really well for me. It's as that begins to become more leaky, right? <laughs> and the internals start to get exposed, then it starts to fall down a bit. Yeah. yeah. One one other thing that I've seen is that in some cases, you know, people move to Docker because, oh, well, we moved over to this cloud and this cloud does the automatic Docker, you know, scaling and all of the other things, load balancing, you know, so they kind of have the, the Kubernetes recipe all figured out for me. I don't have to worry about that stuff. And then the complexity gets passed down to somebody else, right? And so it simplifies up here and it adds complexity down here. And a lot of times there's just not that free communication between the two or a way to really figure out how to make it work for both ends. Yeah, I agree. One thing I will say is uh, this past week I was at RailsConf and I was in Noel Rapin's workshop on stimulus and he had said multiple times, and I just missed the tweets, that you should probably set up the project beforehand, but I didn't do that because I didn't see that. And when I got into the project or into the workshop, I tried to set up the app, and it, of course, didn't work. I think it was Nokogiri. Something wouldn't install Nokogiri. And then I saw and realized he had a Docker, a Docker Compose and a Docker file, and I quickly spun up that Docker instance, and I was off to the races. So for things like that, I think... I think there is a lot of complexity that we, I think we just haven't really solved yet with Docker. I think once we kind of establish some patterns and we all kind of mature in that space a little bit, it's going to get a lot easier and we're going to have these more streamlined flows. So you can just run one command and get up and running and not have to spend, you know, days or hours like getting all that set up. Yeah, I think that once, um, I think we solved the problem fairly well with these kinds of tools for running code, you know, once it's ready. And if we can mature better with these types of tools around setting them up as well, you know, more mind share or handle the abstractions a little bit better. And, and, and probably the problem with that is it's not the tools themselves, but it's the, the teams, the way that they implemented them. Like, okay, we solved this, we solved this, we got busy. Oh, we didn't come back and revisit that. And now there's a lot you have to know to be able to use these tools or else everything breaks. And, you know, I think that just because this tool set that you're using works great on production. It greatly increased the stability of your application in production. Does not mean that you then need to take that tool set over into your development environment. And likewise, in your development environment, you don't necessarily want to take some of the tool sets that you use in there to simplify your development life and take it into production. Well, and I think your other point earlier, Dave, about you know having a process for a lot of this stuff plays in here too, right? Because yeah, you don't have to use the same tools across systems, but if you also have a process, here's how you set up the app, here's how you get it running, here's how we like to commit code, here's how we like to structure things so that it runs through CI, and then here's how the CI system actually builds the Docker container if you're going to use it up there, but not down here, right? And so if you have all these processes documented and well understood, then instead of having the conversation about why the heck doesn't this work, the question is, what's wrong with this process and you know, what are we missing here? And so then you're having a conversation about how to communicate about this stuff rather than you know, having somebody sit there and, and bang their head against the wall trying to chip away at some problem that somebody else could have solved for them. Yeah, and you know, one nice thing about Docker is that it, it does take your environment out of the equation, assuming that you have Docker properly up and running because it is containerized. Your environment really has little to nothing to do with the actual running Docker instance. So I do see the positives in some areas, but I think with that positive, you also get the drawback of you're losing some visibility. You're losing some ease of development or ease of use. If you don't, for say, let's say have the Ruby interpreter installed on your computer, but instead it all lives in a Docker container because then you have to worry about mounting volumes and that kind of stuff, making sure that 
you're not losing work or that sink is working right, whatever the case may be. I'm just going to go be a pig farmer now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it makes me really appreciate when people have gone before or when I've taken the time to just obsess about the few things that matter from a perspective. Like if if I'm obsessing about making an application stable, I can use these tools to great effect. And if I'm obsessing over how to write the code really well, I can do that to great effect. But there's some of these processes and tools where nobody's really obsessed about all the pieces. Like, okay, we've got a, a whole use case here where somebody's coming in and they're trying to do, you know, set something up. Well, nobody's obsessed on how to really make that well. And so you go, like Dave was saying, into this danger world of um, things I don't understand or things I could get wrong and could have really bad side effects. But yeah, I really appreciate it when somebody's focused and then they obsess on how to make something not as good as they can make it. And, you know, I think Rails in many cases, not all, but in many cases is that answer where, I mean, look at back to DHH's original video, like, look at all these things I'm not doing. It's like, let's focus on development. Let's just focus on our goal because we're not getting paid to write code. We're getting paid to ship an application. So let's focus on that. And introducing all these other tool sets can have some benefits, but if it's hurting your ultimate goal of shipping that application to make money, to then you can get paid, the company can grow, you can get more resources, then you're focusing on or you're introducing the wrong things. Or at least if that's what the business is calling for right now due to some crap that you inherited or whatever the situation may be that you've kind of been brought into, then at least have a roadmap to navigate away from that. You know, put in some effort and time to get your environment to where it can be highly productive so you can focus on shipping that application. Absolutely. I I always miss that. I, I work in a lot of different environments and everything outside of Rails seems to have stopped at the 90%. <laughs> and they just leave it up to everybody to to build in that productivity layers on our own. It's like, no, we really either need to take the time to do that for everybody or for ourselves, but getting it to that point where, okay, this system will work very clearly and, and you know, I'm productive now. Um, that's critical. But yeah, I, I really appreciate the way Rails figured that out, that that's what was, that was the most important thing to do. And I think appropriately over time, as things evolved, so did the core Rails. They saw the need to introduce better JavaScript package handling so that those who decide to deviate from the standard could introduce JavaScript sprinkles, like, you know, just add in a React library and component or Vue.js, something like that, to accomplish some of the things that Rails just inherently doesn't do very well. But I think overall, they are adopting and moving with the times uh, in, you know, a respectively quick manner too. You know, I think they're keeping up very well. I think it's kind of the batteries included, like standard library type thinking, right? Put, put everything in there that you might need. And when you need it, it's just there waiting for you. One of the interesting things to tie this back to the Docker conversation, uh, you know, about four or five years ago, I really jumped onto the Docker bandwagon pretty early. And one of the things that I did at where I was working at the time, I had a need to set up a server that was running Graphite, StatsD, Grafana, some of those types of tools. And if you've ever tried to install that manually, <laughs> it is painful. And so I, I built a Docker container that violated essentially all the best practices of what Docker is supposed to be. And I, I went for abstraction. I'm just going to hide all the complexity of that, all of the services and pieces necessary to run a Graphite and StatsD instance inside of a single Docker container. And it actually ended up being wildly popular because of that. It's had over 8 million downloads now and uh, has served as the foundation for a lot of other people taking it and running further with it. I, I haven't really maintained it actively in quite some time, but, but I think Rails kind of does the same thing, right? It, it, and that dovetails into this 
monolith versus microservice debate as well in terms of building your application. Where Because where a Docker gets comp uh, pretty complicated for people is when you go take this microservice mentality and now you have to have an orchestration piece, right? How do I coordinate all the services that are running? And you, so you, you didn't really get rid of the complexity, you just moved it somewhere else. Yeah, which is interesting too, because in a monolith, um, I can get lazy and not quite understand how the whole system's working. But, but whenever I have a system, you know, process or a tool like, like Docker, now I've really got to cross that gap. And, and, and understand the big picture. And I think that's, that's always where I get slow is when I, I hit a tool that I realize I don't know what I'm doing. And, um, and so now I'm, I'm out of sync with the tool and I've either got to build it right and you know, figure out how to abstract it correctly or just understand the pieces I'm missing, which let's face it, there's a lot of those gaps we all have. We, we try to pick them up when we have to, but only when we have to. <laughs> It's definitely true when you, when you kind of, for me, every time I deviate from kind of the Rails golden path of accomplishing something, like it just introduces pain into everything that's happening. And then you find yourself fighting the framework. And yeah, it's, it's difficult if, you, <laughs> if that's the road you choose. You know, I had an experience this morning, actually. I just finished a review for a friend. A friend wants to buy a company. And um, the company's really just all around a Rails app. And so he asked me to review the code, just it wasn't getting into. And they didn't deviate from the Rails way. They were very clean on dependencies. Everything was done the way you'd expect. So I was able to tell him, I looked pretty hard at the code. And yeah, that's very maintainable. You're not, you're not inheriting a, a time bomb here. It's been done well. It's understandable. You can grow it. You can scale it. You know, you can hire somebody to work on it. So it was really amazing. You know, so this, this what we're talking about today really affected somebody's bottom line today too, which is pretty exciting to to see. You know, having said that, there there is a class of applications that do require you know deviating and choosing to split your front end or or things like that. And there may be a reason, other reasons. Uh, maybe the app doesn't dictate that, but the company itself is on this high growth trajectory, right? And you're trying to plan and get ready for scaling the team. You know, initially, I mean, for me, it personally, it really is difficult to embrace that because I prefer small teams and, and being very productive with small groups. And I think Rails is well suited to that. But if your goal is, you know, I'm going to grow my dev team by 50 people this year, then then you have to adopt some different strategies. And that's when SPA starts to look appealing because you can grow that team independently. Uh, that's when microservices start to look more appealing. But I mean, it, it's all tied to this principle of Conway's law, right? Like our technology patterns that we implement essentially reflect the communication patterns within the organization. So if you understand where the organization is going in that direction, it may not necessarily align with the Rails way. And while I, I agree with that, and I can definitely understand where people reach that conclusion, I think that often they reach for that conclusion without thinking about the added cost that it comes with. And that's complicating your development process. You know, everyone could eventually justify the need for an SPA, but reaching for an SPA, the first thing, like they do a Rails new and then Webpack equals React or something like that, the very first thing that they do, then they're adding in so much complexity without really having the justification yet. And I think that's where my main issue is. You're always going to have the one-off situations where someone says, our application has to be an SPA. You know, I think like Photoshop Online, that would be an application where I would not want that to be refresh in the page for every vector or line I drew. Something like that totally makes sense. Photoshop online is a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them 
And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. You know, I, I did that literally once. Um, so I'm guilty of that where years ago I built a Rails app, immediately put a, it was either React or Angular on it. I spent a week or two building that out and realized I, I'd gone way too early on that. So I threw it away and, and started over, you know, and, and, and kept it simple. And that was enough. But it was interesting how I, I thought, oh no, I definitely it's justifiable. I definitely want all these other things. And then I realized how expensive those things are. And I thought, you know what? Let's let's force them to make me do it. <laughs> make me make <laughs> make me. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I could build you an SBA, but make me. Anyway, but yeah, I'd made that mistake and, and lost a couple of weeks of, of development time because I had a. Uh, well, and it's so funny because the conventional wisdom on the web seems to go that way. I mean, I, I have shows on JavaScript, React, Angular, and Vue, and they all kind of push it that way. Hey, just just you know, let the framework take over the whole page. And then I'm building a podcasting app and it turns out that having the page refresh every time you click a link, it works pretty darn good for most things, you know? There are a handful of things where I'm like, no, this this needs to respond in this way. But yeah, so... And, and it's easy to fall into, right? Because people you respect are going to give you the opinion that you need the tool when you may not. Well, that, that kind of ties into like our topic for today. The like are these complex tools really necessary? And in some of this, you know, SPA world, the, the, the complexity of the tooling and the libraries and the stacks that you choose do require a full-time, like you have to be thinking about that aspect of it full-time, right? You, you can't be split in this full stack way where you're concerned about your database schema and things like that. You really do need to specialize if you choose some of these highly sophisticated tools. And of course, somebody who specializes in that is going to advocate that that's the way to go because that's where their, their knowledge is centered. Does that make them wrong? For certain use cases or a lot of use cases, kind of like what you just alluded to with your podcasting app, I think, I think it does. Yeah, I, I get it that a lot of people want the, the, new, the new and the latest thing, but does it really add, add value? You know, and I think it takes a little bit of discipline to say, no, I, I don't see the value yet. Or I'm willing to be wrong in this case, but let's go simple and, and see what if that's good enough. Um, I was looking at job, just what's out there these days. And there's so many of these specialized SBA type jobs. And I'm not sure, but I'd imagine a lot of those are, you know, wouldn't have been necessary. We just kind of accepted that we have to build it these ways. But that's a lot of people working on projects, doing a lot of work that I don't know. But again, if you bring that back to the communication patterns and the growth trajectory of the organization, it may be necessary to do that to scale your team. But I do agree with Dave. Like That, that really rubs me the wrong way because I want to be as efficient as possible with as few as possible. But And, and I think the that line in the sand where you actually hit the tipping point and it starts to pay off is probably much further out than people think it is. Yeah. Well, I've been rereading Getting Real you know, and that thing's been around forever, that book. And um, but I was looking at that last weekend, like, yeah, just just getting simple things out there and then working with customers, that's really the most important thing. And then after that, sure. But how hard is it really to go from a, you know, basic Rails view into an SBA versus, you know, needing to get it up front? I mean, it's it's not that hard to add later if you need it. So let me pull this back the other direction then, because I'm I'm curious, and uh, I, I'm I'm a little conflicted on this point. So you also have these cloud systems like Firebase or you know Microsoft Azure or AWS, um, you know that have varying levels of learning curve to them. I'll admit, but Firebase seems pretty easy to get set up with, and it, it'll handle a lot of your backend systems. It'll handle a lot of your, you know, a lot of this stuff, and and basically give you data forms and the whole nine yards. And so then you just pull in a couple of queries 
And, you know, if you have to do data visualization, you pull in a data visualization library and then you're off to the races. So if you're, if we're talking about tools that you don't need because they add complexity to your app, then is there a line out there where you ought to be looking at a system like this? It's kind of a backend as a service and not even worry about Rails. Yeah. So where I kind of draw the line on these backend systems, and I do think they do provide some flexibility and some really nice things. But in a lot of cases, when you commit to one of them, then you're locking yourself into a provider. And that's where I have my issue. Because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when does your company get acquired by someone else? They have a different direction. And now you have to have this migration effort of moving stuff from one provider to another, from AWS to Azure. And if you are deviating from a more core system, so if you're not using Postgres, instead if you're using whatever AWS's... Um, database engine is, not the Aurora, but like a Redshift or something, then what kind of headaches are you then going to introduce down the road? So that's where I kind of draw the line and kind of put my foot down with the infrastructure side of things is if I take all of this stuff, other than the deployment scripts that I'm using for AWS, am I going to be able to easily replicate that over into Azure to where now the infrastructure doesn't matter? It's all about the deployment scripts that you would have to modify, not your infrastructure. Yeah, the, the, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because most of the companies that I've spoken with that have acquired other companies they generally will let them run on whatever they're running on until they have a compelling reason to move. And so, yes, you you are setting yourself up for that potential vendor lock-in. But the flip side of it is, is that it may never become an issue. It could be, but it may not become an issue. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just coming from having been through two acquisitions and yeah. having have this happen each time. So, you know, just from personal like experience and burns, I learned after the first time to make my application more infrastructure or provider agnostic. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but, but I do wonder, you know, maybe you don't ever intend to sell or, you know, maybe you're only going to sell the companies that aren't going to force you to change your infrastructure. Are there other reasons not to use some of these tools that abstract away a lot of the stuff that we worry about in our own setup and tooling? So I think if you are going to introduce something like that, then you should have a wrapper around it to where the entry point to that service is isolated to where you only have to change one small area of your application to then accommodate something else. But don't let that infrastructure dictate the core business logic of your code. Wrap it into something else that you're then calling out. But then within your business logic, you would just have the calls to this wrapper that makes an execution call out to whatever service. I think the introduction of GraphQL makes it a little bit easier to have that interface that Dave's talking about. That if I were to start with a backend as a service, um, having a GraphQL front end or interface makes it a lot easier to replace the back end if I decide I outscaled it or it was wrong or I, whatever I needed to do. But that's it, a big it, commitment to say I want to now go build a whole back end because, but, but yeah, I think you've got to have a really clear interface to be able to even consider it. Yeah, but if you do have a wrapper interface over the top of, say, Firebase or something, then yeah, you could go in and replace the Firebase calls with API calls to another system. Yeah. And so yeah, that does that does allow you to kind of reflect and migrate and you know and either write to both for a while or you know whatever you have to do. Although that that wrapper layer does add a, uh, some additional complexity, right? And the the benefit I think you led with on some of those types of services Chuck where it was it essentially lowers the barrier, right? For developers yeah. to get in and actually build an app, what you know going back to what David had said the, the goal here is to get an application in front of somebody, right? That's, or, or Dave, you know, that, that's, our goal is to put an app, we're shipping an application, not necessarily getting paid to write code. And if commoditizing some of those backend components makes it 
easier, lowers the barrier to entry, then you know, more power to them. Yep, I, I tend to agree. I mean, if you're looking to make it migratable, you can. But yeah, I also agree that it does add complexity because now you have a layer that you have to maintain on top of it. And it's always going to be about trade-offs. You know, at the point in time where you are at in the development life cycle, how much time can you invest in creating this wrapper without affecting delaying the end product? Because, you know, ultimately, as we all have alluded to, the end product is going to be the ultimate goal. But if you know that your company is very wishy-washy and has changed environments many times over the past few years, because whatever newest and coolest is out now, then it may be more worth it to build in that wrapper layer. So it's not Friday night at midnight, you're calling all hands on shift to then build in this new integration to this other tool that they introduced that dictated you now have to use this other service. So you're going to have to weigh it based on a case-by-case basis to see what's going to be ultimately best for the customer, what's going to be best for the application, what's going to be best for our daily lives that we're going to have to deal with. I think organizational stability is a really fascinating thing because I've, I've inherited systems that have done exactly what Dave's talking about, where they built the right perfect system for what the organization wanted, and then the organization shifted. And it was a complete mismatch later. And brilliant people had built brilliant systems, but but things had changed. And just getting a sense of, you know, if, if people don't have a, a clear goal or, or have a sense of how are we going to serve our customers, it tends to get hard to make anything, any kind of a decision that's, that's you know, not just your basic, really simple, the same thing, everybody does everything. You know, but and, and sometimes that's just the environment you're in. It's not the business's fault. It's just not that stable. This is what it's going to take to to work in this in this space. But but yeah, I've I've underestimated that sometimes. Where we go, we build this great system, or I've inherited a system that's built great, and then yeah, everything changed. Yeah, and I'm in the same boat there. The only reason why I am passionate about it is because I've made that mistake multiple times. And now I'm like, I don't want to deal with this again. I don't want to do this again. So I tried to, you know, gear things differently when I started a new application. I'm cringing because I just made that mistake. And now I'm realizing... (laughs) (laughs) I'm I've just earlier today realized that I'm going to have to walk backwards and I'm... So unhappy. Well, I, I think we all have to kind of walk into that thorn bush a couple of times and then kind of go, oh, that hurts when I go that way. I'm not going that way this time. <laughs> oh, Chuck, I didn't walk into it. I plunged headfirst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, then you're going to get some scrapes. <laughs> That's all I have to oh, say. Yeah. One other thing that I'm curious about here with, you know, talking about tools, you know, maybe hindering the process is... And then this came out of, you know, David talking about some of the ideas around we built the perfect tool and then things shifted. And so what I'm wondering is, do we get to the point then where, yeah, we, we've been using the right tool all along and then something changes, you know? And so now we're up against one of the constraints that Rails puts on us, or we're up against one of the constraints that maybe a front-end library puts on us, or we're up against the constraints that our server can really run or we, we have some kind of concurrency level that, that Ruby doesn't handle well, or something like that, you know, do, do we get to the point where those tools are the tools that we're actually fighting against instead of the sort of infrastructure tools or the, the coding tools? I see that. I, the allegory of the boiling frog where the, the warm water gets slowly warmer and all of a sudden it's unbearable. You know, um, that's kind of what that is, right? Where things slowly, we hit constraints slowly, we're used to working a little bit harder than a little bit harder, and we're able to kind of do that. But but nobody really can poke their head out and say, man, if we had built this differently or if we had a system organized differently, this would be a whole lot easier. But it's, it's, it's hard because we get there by degrees, and then we just learn to inherit it. Or we get there by degrees, and then we build a, a fairly sophisticated system that fixing it isn't trivial anymore. So, yeah, it happens. I don't know the answer <laughs> what to do. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if it's just inherent. Like I'm right there with with you guys in terms of having done things wrong a lot of times. And so now my default is 
to reach for, you know, rails out of the box. I go with Postgres and Redis. Like there's certain components that I know are tried and true and they can scale massively. And I just reach for them every time because I know they can be effective. But I mean, there, it may come to a point where it doesn't serve serve me well or serve the need well uh, for what I'm after. But I wonder if that's just an inherent problem in, in what it is we do because it's so complicated and we're sitting on top of, you know, a, a, a company with changing requirements, you know, that come in tomorrow and, and everything can be different. Yeah. And Usually where I've seen this, people run into this are, you know, with Ruby in particular, it's, oh, well, I have a certain need for a certain level of concurrency that I didn't realize I had before. And, and that usually comes with some form of scaling and, and a few other concerns, right? And so then they're looking at things like Elixir as, as an answer to that. And, you know, and then, yeah, so, sometimes they build in a, a separate system and it's almost like a microservice architecture just for that one thing that needs that particular performance. And, you know, sometimes that's not really even a good answer. But then I've also run into people with the front-end frameworks, for example. They all do things just a little bit differently. And so what, they've, what they run into is they run up against some constraint with the way that React kind of pushes you to do things and realize that maybe an Ember or Angular doesn't have that particular quirk to it. And so, yeah, but then they get into the other system and they find out that it has some other quirk that also gets in their way. So it, it's a hard problem to solve, but, but it's always interesting to see, you know, at, at what basic level are you running into these things and when is hey, I love this tool, you know, I love this thing, I love Ruby, I love Rails, but it's not going to solve the problem the way I need it solved. Well, you know, 20 years ago, I loved Visual Basic and I was developing applications in Visual Basic and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Not as much as I enjoyed Rails, but at the time, it was really great. But then, if I had kept that same mindset and never shifted on to something new, when the demand required... So when the shift of the web, Web 2.0, you had a lot more interactions with websites came along. If I still stuck to Visual Basic or maybe upgraded to .NET VB and did web forms, then I would have kind of been left in the dust because now I'm managing a backend application to do certain functionality and then just kind of wrapped around a HTML front end to that. So there's always going to be a shift. And I think Rails is still young that we can at least squeeze another 15 years out of it before the next big thing comes along that's going to require a different way of doing something. But you know, we have to be open-minded to that. Otherwise, we're just going to become the dinosaurs of people who used to be in tech, of people who used to code. And then we're going to move on to be that Walmart reader or something. I'm, I'm still waiting for drifting VB6. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think another uh, angle to this, this question is, is also interesting is the organizational uh, reality. Let's say you, you build something with a tool and you're a little bit out phased now and you bring on the new people, the new hungry young Turks that you know, want to prove themselves. And it's, it's interesting that when you're in that kind of tech debt, you're in the awkward position of, okay, we, we did well for what we knew. And now we need to move forward. And somebody wants to make a name for themselves. Learning how to lead in that environment, learning how to work around these, these trade-offs and keep the organization moving together well um, is important. Because I've seen that a lot where somebody new will come in and say, oh, yeah, that's a bad idea. Let's just go. And without any real deference to um, that's expensive or, um, yeah, now that makes sense. But we have other priorities we need to handle first. You know, but they're, they're you know, we just hired them. So we're really excited about them and we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's a little bit disruptive in an organization. So learning how to lead in an environment where that is existing and sometimes, yeah, you do. You just need to go, you know, and a new person can push you in the right direction. And sometimes you really can't. So, yeah, the human element to that gets gets complicated too. Can I can I put my finger on this uh, point? And yeah, I'm going to push on it. It's going to hurt folks. But uh, the, all these problems we're talking about, we've kind of talked around a lot of the technological and, uh, you know, and systematic ways of, of thinking about them and handling them. But I have almost never seen 
this kind of problem exist where there wasn't a major organizational component to it. You know, David's talking about, hey, you know, what about the organizational concerns? There's almost always, you know, at least 30, 40% of the concern. And sometimes it's 60 to 70 to 80% of the concern. It's manifesting as a technological problem. It's an organizational problem. Yeah. Developers are tinkerers, right? And and if you're in a management position with developers and you hire the the you know your your, your new fresh employees, they're all interested in kind of proving themselves, and and they may be bringing you know some pet technologies or something they've wanted to work with for a while into the organization, and it may not necessarily be the best choice. So managing that well is a challenge. Like, it, how do I allow the developers to? you know, satisfy that need to be curious and try new things and kind of be on the cutting edge of stuff, but at the same time, making the correct technical choices for my organization and where we need to be, you know, in two years, five years, whatever. Yeah. Well, and it's in in a lot of ways by allowing them to tinker, we're nurturing them, you know, and allowing them to grow and to be better people. And so it's, it's, it's tough because there's technological side, there's organizational side, you know, what can we develop? You know, how do we lead? One thing that I've tried, I don't know if people that I've worked with would agree with me, but but what I've tried to do is I say, well, these are our priorities. This is our biggest risks. If we get this wrong, everything goes wrong. And I'm just very open about that. So people can show me what I'm missing. You know, I'll, I'll set the priority in the direction. Like guys, you know, this is our biggest risk. We have to be faster on our turnaround or we have to be you know, whatever the the thing is that we have to accomplish. And then if the team really disagrees with either my priorities or how I'm handling them, they can tinker and get involved and push in a way that I don't take it personally. Like I'll do the best I can, but I'm open about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And they can come show me that I'm an idiot and, (laughs) and fine. You know, I was lacking awareness. I didn't have the the thing that I needed. Um, so that helps take the edge off a little bit, but it's a really tough thing. You know, I want to develop the people. I want to develop the technology. I want to protect the company. And sometimes those interests are at odds with each other. And I've had people leave that got impatient, you know, where I just have identified the, the priority is this, and they just did not want to work on that priority at that, at that time. And that was just the fair thing to do is they they went and found a place to to be better better suited. Yeah, if you've stayed long enough with an organization, for me, and, and this kind of speaks to what Dave had alluded to earlier, where like I, I don't think it's not a foregone conclusion that you know the, the folks that are wanting to sit on kind of out of the box rails aren't aren't bleeding edge. Um, like I've gone off on these tinkering quests, and we've done SPAs with pretty much every front end stack you can imagine. We've done microservices. We've carved stuff out in different programming languages and things like that. And now my default go-to because of that experience is to just stick to Rails. And to speak to David's point about the developer who doesn't stick around because the company is not entertaining or allowing them to introduce the technologies or stacks that they want to or coding a certain way, whatever the situation may be, I think that in a lot of cases, those developers are kind of hurting themselves in some ways because they are not going to stick around long enough to see the consequences of those decisions. And then they're going to take them to the next company and introduce them, get bored or get dissatisfied and move on again without ever sticking around long enough to see like, oh, wow, yeah, no, introducing this is a really bad idea. It has some use cases, but I've not come across one yet. Or the, the other angle of that is it might have been the right decision a year ago, but it's not now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating if we can build candor in our thinking and in our conversations. Uh, we can usually figure this stuff out, you know, our tools, our processes, where we're going. But having the courage to say, all right, this is how I see it. And this is clearly what's going on. And like, you know, uh, Chuck just said, you know, yeah, that was probably a good idea a year ago. But um but here's where we are now. And it's always a little bit embarrassing. I guess the candor is hard because personally, I can feel embarrassment when I got it wrong or when good decision, bad result. Sometimes that happens. You know, given what I knew then, I made a decision and then what ended up happening wasn't what I was hoping would happen. 
but that candor, you know, and the willingness to be embarrassed and the willingness to just, all right, this is where we're at. That works, you know? Um, and I've worked around people that they don't have patience for that, or they're so type A and they're so judgmental. Uh, it's really a toxic thing. Um, and I've noticed these guys, they end up taking over organizations sometimes and then all the good talent leaves, <laughs> you know, uh, they just don't want to be, um, they just don't want to be around that. So making it safe to be candid is, is, is also valuable for building a team and a, and a technology stack. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important also just to realize we're, we're talking about this like, oh, well, the, the best solution is probably to not build an SPA or the best solution is probably not to do, you know, and sometimes it is. And sometimes we don't have the perfect information to say, oh, yeah, we definitely need to go that way. And so, yeah, having those candid conversations about that too, right? We didn't have the information to make the right decision then. So we made the best decision we could. And now looking back, it's obvious that we would have been better off going down that other road. But we are where we are now. So where do we go from here? And then it's not a, well, I'm judging you, David, because I can't believe you didn't use Vue.js and uh, you know Elixir on your project or whatever. It's, okay, well, we built this out in Rails. It works you know, for, for 90% of the cases. So what do we do for the other 10% because management's telling us that they're critical? Yeah. Hey, folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told that I had a Rails app and off it went. It set it all up. It does the deployment. And now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice. It's straightforward. It has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues. That's all one word, capital R, capital R, RubyRogues, for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. All right, well, should we do picks? Do it. All right. Nate, you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think I may have picked this before, but I'm going to pick it again because I've just been uh, finding so much value in it. And that is um, when I've had a need to pair program. Now I need you need someone that has an Apple device. So this is if you're if everybody's on Apple stuff hardware, then you can use Mac messages to do screen sharing, and it actually works really fantastic. So if you open up your messages app and go to one of your contacts that's also on some Apple hardware, you can click the drop down by their name and invite them to share your screen or vice versa. And uh, it, it's worked very well. Not a whole lot of latency and you can keep maintain the call. It's It's been pretty fantastic. Other pick that's not tech for me would be uh, the Band of Brothers miniseries and the book, uh, really fantastic. Probably the best war film uh, that's been made, in my opinion. That's nice. it. David, what are your picks? Um, I've been reading uh, Great at Work by Morton Hansen, and I love it. And it seems to be on, on topic for what we're talking about today. It's about almost all of the value from really doing well at our jobs comes from focusing and then just obsessing about that uh, decision, performing well, executing well. But uh, he, uh, he did a great job looking at what, what works at work across uh, a lot of levels and dealing with the whole manager-employee relationship specifically, you know, how, how we work with our bosses or our employees uh, or our team. And so it's a great book. I, I really enjoyed it and it's clear. So it's uh, Great at Work by uh, Morton, Morton Hansen. Nice. Dave, what are your picks? All right. So I think the first pick is going to be the Brew Bundle Dump. And I'll post a link to where that is, but just making sure that you're able to quickly replicate your development environment is really important. And the second pick is going to be a show on NBC called Superstore. It's a 
very silly show. Uh, it's really funny. And they have like four seasons out now. I've seen ads for it. <laughs> Andrew, what are your picks? Uh, since we were talking about homebrew a lot earlier, um, I found a cool little tool called Cake Brew. It's a little gooey for seeing all of your formulas and stuff. And you can quickly update and update your homebrew, update your formulas, um, find new ones. Uh, I think it's it's cool if you don't want to get too into your terminal. I think if you want to manage homebrew a little bit better. Awesome. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks here. Um, last week, I was at Microsoft Build in Seattle. And uh, one thing that I really <laughs> was really nice when I was traveling um, is a, a few years ago, I got TSA PreCheck. And that's super nice. You go through the, the line where you don't have to take off your shoes or your belt. I actually had to take off my belt in Seattle. I think they had their uh, metal detector turned all the way up. Most of the time, I can just walk through and it doesn't pick up my belt. But yeah, it's really nice. I don't have to open my backpack or anything like that. And then a few months ago, I went and signed up for Clear, which is it's basically identity verification when you walk in. So they use your fingertips and, your, and retinal scans to um, verify your information. What's great about it is that if you have both, then what happens is, is you walk up, you put your fingers on the little finger pad, and it'll verify you that way. If it can't, then it'll use your retinal scans, like I said. But then you just walk up to the front of the line. They just they escort you to the front of the line. You just show your boarding pass. You don't even have to pull your driver's license out or anything. And you just show the boarding pass to the TSA agent, and you just walk walk through and get in line for the, the scanning your bag and stuff. So anyway, um, the two together has been really nice. So I'm going to pick those. And uh, then I'm also going to just shout out, if you have a podcast that you've been listening to that you wish uh, would come back because it's disappeared, let me know. I've been trying to help um, some of these shows come back. And uh, so, yeah, I'd be happy to reach out to whatever podcaster you were listening to and see if there's any way we can get that show back up. So, yeah, that's all I got. Well, big thanks to our panel for pinch hitting our guest didn't show. But uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.